last week. Uh, by the way, I, I'm going to uh, also blame uh, Rena's hormones on my emotional state. <laughs> can, I, can I borrow that? <laughs> to see the children is bittersweet for me, but more sweet because we can share in the joy uh, of all that God is doing among us and the hope of life eternal. I began a series that introduces and explains the Disciple Center. The purpose of the series is to remind and reinforce us who we are and provide an explanation to those who want to understand us or who might want to pattern their congregation in a similar manner. Last week I explained the Disciple Center name as a place of discipleship, a house of students, uh, a Beit Talmudin. Uh, and, I, and I talked about our, our being a gathering of households. I said I would talk more about that. I'll do that today. And the four basic functions of our gathering. We gather to worship and pray. We gather for instruction and discipleship. We gather for uh, fellowship and ministry to one another, body life it's sometimes called, and for reconciliation, uh, the community uh, of judgment and standards and reconciliation when disruption has taken place. Uh, those are the uh, primary functions of uh, synagogues and congregations historically. Also address the symbolism of our logo, which is a composite of biblical themes, the menorah, the the tablets of the commandments and the chalice uh, that uh, is shared both in Judaism and Christianity and their meaning. So today I want to talk about the relational and communal aspects of the congregation, but again I want to read that statement uh, that kind of overviews the entire um, uh, series. The Disciple Center Congregational is a relational congregation, is a relational and liturgical multi-denominational gathering of households in community for mutual worship, discipleship, ministry, and reconciliation. We are Judeo-Christian in theology and practice. We function as a private congregation for the purpose of protecting the integrity of the members and to maintain our focus on discipleship. Members of the congregation also participate in public ministry beyond the congregation as an extension of the congregational ministry and in concert with other congregations, ministry organizations, and fellow believers. We also seek to provide witness to the message of God through our lives and activities and by intentional living and explaining the good news found in Jesus to the Jew first and also to all people. Today I want to talk about us being a relational community, and in some sense the term relational community is redundant. But we live in a time and we live in a context where um, the idea of community is shifting more towards a collective and less the idea of a community in a relational sense. So I want to talk about that, and I also want to talk about why we're a gathering of households and not a gathering of individuals. Um, so I have to talk about what we mean by relational, and I have to talk about what we mean by household, and I have to talk about what constitutes a community. However, to do that, I have to talk about individualism because you and I have grown up in a culture that is steeped 
in individualism. So much so that when we talk about community, and even more so in the generation that's growing up now, the word simply does not have the meaning that it once had. Community historically had three components to it. Those components were the household, the family, if you will, the neighborhood, and then the congregation. And, and those ideas of community are, to a large extent, gone. Uh, and so we are struggling to build a relational community here. So let me talk a little bit about individualism. I wrote some of this so I wouldn't wander. You know me, I can talk an hour and a half on every point, and I'm trying not to do that. Western culture is based in a strong notion of individualism. Anthropologists have called this rugged individualism. It's a notion that the Western culture is more focused on the individual than on the group. Not to the exclusion of the group, but in the context of group belonging and individual uh, identity. The American culture has tended, and Western culture itself, has tended to focus on the individual because of our Greco-Roman backgrounds. And that's one of the reasons why we don't refer to people by their family name. We refer to people by their given name uh, because the individual is important. It's why the 91 freeway is packed in the morning because every car that can hold four, five, or six people has one person in it. Uh, because of this individual thing. We have our own rooms, we have our own beds, we have our own everything. You know, that individual emphasis is there. And uh, anthropologists studying that have called that um, uh, rugged individualism. It places the emphasis on the individual over the group. Now, Middle Eastern culture and Eastern cultures, the group is emphasized over the individual but the individual is still apart. And so you'll see those things. You, you would not go to a Far East culture and find books on codependency as a problem. That's a problem in Western civilization because the thought that I might need another person is a, is a psychological problem, right? Uh, or it could be an emotional risk. Uh, you wouldn't get that in the Far East. So it's important to keep in mind that in the in the East and the Middle East, the emphasis is on the group, though the individual is certainly a part of that. In the West, the emphasis has been on the individual, though the group has certainly been a part of that. Now, the Bible, the scriptures that we, uh, that we study and that we try to live, are a product of Middle Eastern culture, specifically the culture of the Hebrews. That means that the Bible, in a sense, is not indigenous to Western culture which is foundationally Greco-Roman. The ancients understood this difference between the Greeks and the Jews. Paul, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 22 to 23, says that the Jews are seeking a sign and the Greeks are seeking wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. How can salvation come from one who's cursed hanging on a tree? And to the to the uh, Greeks or the Gentiles, foolishness, because how can a dying, uh, uh, rising God in any sense help us? Because after all, the body is a problem. So the idea of resurrection, give me a break. 
right? So, so this notion uh, of the distinction between the Hebraic and the Greco-Roman world was there. Now later, Tertullian, a second century church father, uh, famously said, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? So the ancient world understood that a major worldview divided uh, and separated the humanistic Greco-Roman world from the theological Judeo-Christian faith in, in a very real sense. Now obviously, those then came together. And in coming together, we got a mixture that has been, in some cases, an uneasy mixture. So unless the Bible is un understood and interpreted against its actual cultural and linguistic background, it can be reinterpreted to focus on the individual and individualistic orientation. This is why in the 60s, we turned the gospel into, did you know that God loves you? you individually, and has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, he loves me? Yes, he loves you. Oh, then it's me and Jesus. Or what I like to call Jesus for one theology developed, and that is not a biblical doctrine. It's an American mindset, uh, and we, we need to keep that in mind. The American church certainly has become a mixing of Judeo-Christian faith and Greco-Roman culture, and began to shift through the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment, Western civilization, moving towards this American culture, uh, began to move individualism so that today we have what I call radical individualism. It's not just rugged individualism. There's personal responsibility, and uh, the group will help me, but I have to step up to the plate. We now have, I don't need anybody. It's me and maybe God, but I may not need God. And anybody who gets in the way of what I want and my better life, I'm going to cut them loose. And so we have a very utilitarian, individualistic culture. And the, the faith that we belong to is a communal faith. And individualism in that sense is a foreign concept to it and really antithetical to what it's about. We see this in our postmodern transition right now because biologically based sexuality, male and female sexuality, has now moved to a psychologically based gender identity that may uh, cover as many as nine different sexual identities and orientations, and more are on the way. Um, this, this is a major distinction between the Hebraic mindset and the uh, uh, the Greco-Roman kind of mindset. And I believe that in America we're beginning to rip the Judeo-Christian faith away from the foundations of the Greco-Roman roots and they are, they are springing back to life. And it makes us, in some sense, push to the margins of the culture. Um, and, you know, between that and some of our own stupidity, uh, you know, people become hostile to us. So... There's another thing that's added to this, and I, I didn't write much about it, but I thought about it this morning, and, and you need to know what that is. And that's technology has done a lot to add to this. Historically, congregations, Jewish congregations, and Orthodox congregations to this day are built in an area, and you are required to buy a house that is within walking distance of the shul, of the synagogue. 
That means that home, neighborhood, and congregation will be community. But as you know, we have cars and we can drive from county to county. And we have technology so we can stay at home and watch this. And we can text each other. And so we have become much more separated. And I'm watching it on the university. Many of the students do not know how to relate to another person. They know how to text another person. They don't know how to relate to another person. And so the idea of relationship and community is, is being lost. So the last bastion of relational community is the household. But as the congregations continue to lose their communal dynamics and become more uh, just places you go, sit next to a stranger, listen to the show, and then go home. As that happens more and more in congregations, the households are also becoming more and more individualistic. And so uh, we, are, we are beginning to lose even the household. And I believe that the household is central to the congregation, not the other way around. The congregation is a reinforcement of the household, but things have to be learned and done in the household, or the congregation will simply uh, uh, not, it will fail its task because it doesn't have access to you as much as the household does. So, community is a sense of belonging that provides mutual benefits and obligations which maintain the community and the individual members of that community. And that's true for households. It used to be true of neighborhoods, and it used to be true of congregations. I grew up in, in a household where uh, there wasn't much technology. We didn't get a, 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 a television until I was, you know, I think seven, seven years old. And uh, we, we had a party line. Any of you know what that is? It's not a party line. It's a, you pick up the phone and someone else is talking and you can't talk now. Uh, and there's one phone in the whole house. And so, so if you needed to talk to somebody, you, you went outside and talked to your neighbors. And we didn't have access to a lot of things, so you knew who the neighbors were and they knew who you were. I got spanked by neighbors almost as much, uh, though not as hard as my own family. So, you know, there, you, were, you grew up in that kind of a, a con context. That neighborhood idea is gone, just gone. So what what is the basic theology and components of a community? Three things. Kinship, a commitment to one another based on covenant, and relational roles and rules. Now I'm going to do this very quick. Many of you have been through uh, my teachings on this, and but I, I want to lock this down because it's important as I talk about households and talk about some things you may not have thought about uh, to understand this. There are three kinds of relatives. There are relatives who are your relatives because you share DNA. We call them biological relatives. Some people call them real relatives. That's a joke. But the idea is they're biologically oriented to us. They're, they're family, you know. And you're kind of stuck with them. You know, they're, they're, they're your family. And the, so the biological relative is a kinship link. There's a second kind of kinship link that is one done by law. And that happens when you marry and that ha- we talk about our in-laws. I mean, technically, Linda is my wife-in-law. Right? She's an in-law. And I'm an in-law to her. Now, I don't call her that. 
She doesn't call me that. There may be times when we might think about, right? The, the, you know, there are times when her family and my family go, what, what planet did you come from, right? Now, part of that's gender. Part of that's family background, right? So, uh, there is, these are two very important relationships. People we are related to because we are family, and pe- uh, biologically family, and people we are related to as family because we are uh, contracted with them or covenanted with them through marriage and by law or by adoption. The third one is very important but is tends to be dismissed in American culture. And that is what we call fictive relationships. Now you all had an, an Uncle Charlie or an Aunt Mildred who showed up at family things and you had no idea where that person came from. I had three grandparents, uh, three grandmothers when I was growing up. And my grandma... Uh, uh, Pete, who was my dad's mom, and I had my grandma Carlson, who was my mom's mom, and I had grandma Castor. Grandma Castor lived just down the street around the corner from us, and grandma Castor thought I was the most wonderful person who ever walked the face of the earth. And she was right. She was just a wonderful person. And she grandmawed me like crazy. And one day I said to my mom, Mom, I know that Grandma Pete is Dad's mom and Grandma Carlson is your mom. Whose mom is Grandma Castor? And my mom said, Bruce, you need to realize that Grandma Castor is not your real grandma. And I said, you want to bet? And I was right. She lived here. My other grandmothers were far away. She grandmawed me every day. And people who function in a role are real relatives. She was a real grandma to me. Okay? Uh, Tyrone's mother uh, became a real mother to me in in some sense when, when I lived with them. So, Be careful about treating that as not a real relative because your relationship to Jesus, unless you're Jewish and from the tribe of Judah, is not biological. And it's not legal in the sense of he didn't adopt you in that sense. The biblical term of adoption is is not the way we do it here. Our relationship is He is Lord and we are servant. God is Father and we are child by creation. And those things have a fictive role. And Jesus says, if you take your blood relatives or your in-laws and place them higher than your relationship with me, you are not worthy of me. So He has made this congregational and spiritual relationship that you and I have as brothers and sisters in the Lord as the highest priority. That's very difficult for a materialistic culture like ours to do that where we're constantly searching for a genetic connection or where we want to to have the contract thing. But it's a very important notion. And so Paul tells us to treat older women as mothers, older men as fathers, uh, younger women as sisters, younger men as brothers. We are to treat the children as our sons. We are to function as if we were a household of God. And that gives us a kinship connection that's very important. And that has to be understood and that has to be practiced. Because if it's not experienced, it's just a slogan. 
And in many churches, we talk about brothers and sisters as a slogan and not as a real relational context. Secondly, there is a covenant or a commitment to one another that brings about community. This is one of the reasons we're private. I'll talk about that later. But we have to work at this being uh, related to one another. A covenant is an agreement between persons that binds them in relationship to that agreement. It's more than a contract, and it's more than a pledge. It's a sacred vow, and it's a trust made with God and before God, which brings judgment on the one who violates it. That judgment may be temporal, or it may be eternal, based on the covenant itself. When we stand before God, know before whom you stand, when we stand before God and say, I take you to be my wife, I take you to be my husband, we are making a vow before God. And that is a, that's not an eternal uh, vow. Some people think it is. Some people feel like it is. It, it's a temporal vow. At the resurrection, marriage will not be there. But the, it, is a, it, is, it is intended to be a permanent con, uh, covenant in this life between a husband and wife. When we make a vow before God to do something, engaging in ministry or some other uh, form of vow before God, that is a, a covenant with God that we, that we are to keep. And so, um, it's not about civil law in the sense, but it's about the law of God and those of us who engage in this Judeo-Christian faith are brought into covenant relationship with God and covenant relationship with each other. And in the local congregational context, we are placed into covenant relationship with each other. I'm going to tell you a little secret about Baptists that Baptists don't know anymore. I didn't know it when I became a Baptist. I was one time at a men's breakfast and I... I was talking about something I was doing, and one of the deacons said, well, Brother Bruce, here we go, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's a violation of our covenant. And I said, whose covenant? And he said, our covenant. I said, whose are? He says, yours and mine in the community of faith that we belong to. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, well... Baptist churches define themselves as a group of baptized believers who are covenanted together. The Baptist faith and message says associated by covenant. And historically, every Baptist church, because Baptists are independent, okay? because we're independent, we have to create our own covenant that shows what we have agreed to before God and each other. Now, they, they're very similar to other Baptists, and they're certainly similar, similar to other Christians. But if you go into a um, more traditional church, the covenant and the creed is there, and you simply join it. Okay? But in the Baptist church, we're kind of independent. And so we say, we'll, we'll, we'll say it ourselves. Now, we end up saying the same thing, which is kind of funny, but that's what we do. So we say we believe in the Trinity and we have agreed to be a mutual uh, group for each other. We're going to care for each other. We're going to love one another. We do. That becomes the covenant. Many Baptist churches have dropped the idea of covenant and dropped the idea of membership. And so what they really are is the same as a theater 
or the same as a restaurant where you can come and go as you want and you just pay the price or tip them at the end and that's it. That's not community. And that's not even Baptist theology with regard to community. The idea is that we covenant together. So, I want to say about covenant that uh, that community requires that. And that's why historically all Christian communities required a covenant or a rule for establishing a religious household or a community. Now, we have read the Didache uh, last year and uh, two years ago. And we also read the rule of St. Benedict um, to try to get you to understand how this covenanted communal life uh, works. And I also uh, suggest to you the rule of St. Francis uh, and some of the other rules that have historically been used so that you can understand how those who have walked in this faith before us have covenanted together and seen in their relationship an obligation for mutual benefit to one another. Now, the content of our covenant is the statement of faith. And that is the common creed or confession such as the Shema in Judaism or the Kyrios in uh, Orthodox Christianity or the Apostles or Nicene Creed in Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity. But in addition to this common belief set, there are relational rules and roles that guide our behavior in relationship to God and to each other. And again, I've been over this material so much that I'm going to try to cover it somewhat briefly Uh, But you and I have roles in the household as father and mother and husband and wife that are prescribed to us. They are given to us by God. We don't just make up our own. In other words, our our marriages can't be Baptists. (laughs) We can't just say, well, we're going to make up our own. That's what the world does. We are given, this is a husband will love his wife as Christ loved the church. A wife will entrust herself to her husband, right? As the church entrusts itself to Christ. Uh, We try to approximate those in our relationships. They're proscribed, uh, prescribed, I mean, in terms of that. And certain things are proscribed. Uh, We're not allowed to to violate those covenants with each other in, in that context. So in the household, we have that. Children and parents, the same thing. We also have that in the church with the roles of elders and deacons and the younger and the, and the elder women. And all of these roles are prescribed in the scriptures to give us guidelines as to how we are to function in our role generationally and in terms of responsibility within the congregation. And our gifting uh, fits into that. But then we are given not only our roles within the community of faith, we are given rules within the community of faith. And there are three primary rules. And you should, you should teach these diligently to your children. All of the commandments of God in, in the older covenant and the newer covenant. All of, all of those are, uh, are relational rules. There's not a covenant, not a commandment in the scripture that doesn't have to do with one of three kinds of relationships. Our relationship with God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind and with all your, your, your life and with all your strength. Right? And there are all of the holiness commandments are about our relationship to God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I'm not loving them with all that I am. I'm loving them the same way I love myself. And that particularly, if you look at the commandments, addresses how we treat the stranger. And then Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. A different commandment and a different standard. Love God with everything of your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did he love us? He was willing to die for us. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for a friend. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. So all the one anothering commandments found predominantly in the New Testament are commandments about that. So the starting place is to love God, to love your neighbor, and to love one another. And every morning in my prayers, uh, I will recite the Shema, and I will also... uh, Add to that the the three the third commandment so that it's so that it's a reminder of me and often that's ill timed. I've just gotten out of the car. I'm over at CBU. Uh, I've been irritated by the traffic. I'm irritated by the students. I get out and I have to remember my, remind myself to love God, to love the stranger, and to love one another. Right? And I go, oh, I guess I should get back on that path. So we have relational. Uh, community because we are related to one another through the creation and this redemption found in God. We are covenanted together through the covenants of God and our local congregational covenant that we, by the way, renew every year at Pentecost, committing ourselves again to one another. And then we become uh, we follow the roles and the rules of that as we uh, talk about it uh, as we try to observe uh, and practice, uh, Jews observe, Christians practice, uh, the, the commandments of God. So, why then do we gather as households? Why do we not just say, I'm an individual, I'm going to come in and join this community? Why are we joining as households? Now, I already told you, the household is the foundational building block of the congregation, not the individual. Um, So I want to talk about households in a way that I have both talked about and in some ways that I think we need to begin talking about because of the contemporary radical individualism that I'm finding in this younger generation. And hopefully your children will not have as much of a difficulty with this as many of the students that I'm dealing with have. First of all, there is, in some sense, in the scriptures, three kinds of households. And I could do a kind of a Bible study on it, but we don't have time. So, uh, the first one is the marital household. The marital household uh, is one where the family is, uh, there are some subgroups of this, where the family is intact. And the intact family has the father and the mother and the children, or it may have a husband and wife, no children yet, but it's an intact family unit with the marital covenant, the ketubah, if you will, that becomes the primary covenant of the household. And then there are uh, households where that has uh, broken, uh, where there has been a death, The Bible talks a great deal about widows and their children. 
That household is to be cared for with greater intensity because it's missing a piece. And while the Bible talks predominantly about the widow and her children, we could include in that a form of a widower and his children. And then there is in the scriptures, if you read them carefully, uh, a parallel to the widow in the divorced person with the children. Uh, among conservative Christians, there's been a tendency to just say, you're not meeting the ideal, so out with you. And, and, and if you read Paul talking about the care of the widows in Timothy, he tends to uh, imply, based on Torah passages, the inclusion of what I would call the righteously divorced. Now, there's two ways to be righteously divorced. In Judaism, there's a righteous divorce where you got divorced for the right reason. Okay? That's more problematic in Christianity. But there's a second form of that where maybe you didn't divorce for the right reason, but you have turned back to God and you are now moving forward and you are righteous again. I mean, all of us are righteous in that sense, right? None of us are righteous in, I've never broken the commandments, right? We're all righteous in, I have broken the commandments, I've come to God, He has healed and forgiven me, and I am now walking as best I can in obedience to Him. So a divorce situation where it is a righteous household would also be treated in some sense the way the widow the widow's house would be. So there's a marital household. We're, we're pretty much familiar with those. Uh, and we need to work on them. And many of you are therapists and you work on them all the time. But there's more than that. So the second type of uh, biblical household is, is the non-marital family household. Now the non-marital family household, we have a classic biblical example of that. We have others in the scripture, but one that you will know well. Uh, you know Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Okay? A brother and two sisters who are in a household, right? None of them are married. Uh, we don't know whether they were never married or they had a divorce or were widowed. We don't know. All we know is they live together. And this is a household that Jesus is very, very comfortable coming to regularly. He, in, in a sense, is a part of that household when he's in in their area, in their community. And they are family members who have joined in a household. Now, I suspect that the roles in there were somewhat negotiated. We hear that with the story of Jesus coming to teach, and we have the Mary and Martha Stewart problem, right? Where she's saying, we need to do this. Hey, got to get the table set up. We got to get this stuff. And Mary's going, he's here to teach, you know. Um, Personalities, right? (laughs) And roles. You need someone who worries about that stuff and takes care of that stuff, right? But we all can't be Martha and we all can't be Mary uh, and we all can't be Lazarus. You know, we play our roles and we become community in that sense. It's a very boring world if we're all alike, though it would be consistent. Now, Judaism and Christianity have also included, coming out of this biblical notion, a form of household that is a single gender household. It combines believers in a fictive family structure. We traditionally call these monasteries and convents. They are gatherings of believers who function as a family with an abbot or an abbess, Hebrew for father or mother in a sense, right? 
uh, Abba, Abbot. The idea is that they function in a family kind of context with roles and rules within the household and their gathering is spiritual and their gathering is ministerial and their gathering is to glorify the Lord. Now those are very formal structures but I believe we have here a model that can be adapted for single believers in a roommate situation. And I've been talking to students about this. As they put off marriage and they deal with roommates, I talk to them about not being unequally yoked in their roommates. I talk to them about having clear, defined covenant together of what this household is and what their roles are going to be in the household and bring some of the the household worship and, and, and uh, liturgy and, and, and celebrations into that household. And those who have begun to do I've only been doing this a few years with a very small select group because most people think I'm nuts. Which is true, but I'm not wrong about this. Okay? Uh, so the idea is that I think in the formal monastery convent system, and we find them both in Judaism and Christianity by different names, there is a system for believers who are not married to come together and have a household context that reinforces and instructs what needs to be done so that community still is in the household context. One last thing and then I'll shut up. Well, I won't shut up, but we'll go to Q&A. There, the idea of an individual living alone as a household, these things exist historically, but they tend to be historically rare. There's only one institutionalized form of that, and that is the hermit structure that you find in Christianity. Uh, and I don't know, because they are so isolationist, that I'm not sure that's a model for us and there are problems with them historically. So I think we need to be careful about that because we are going to see more and more people who maybe have their own place and they may want to think about the more roommate situation. One thing I have watched among those who are spiritually minded who have their own home and live alone. They tend to gather semi-permanent and permanent dwellers to them. Their homes tend to become places where other believers can come for a short time. Uh, there, so there is a relational framework. In that sense, they become a head of household in, in, in the same sense. I think we need to think about this. I think we need to talk about this. But I think we need to avoid as much as possible a pushing towards radical individualism in Christianity because I think it will do us uh, harm and it will not be good for the next generation. So, we are a gathering of households rather than a collective of individuals. A household is a relational community of kinship, covenant, and relational roles and rules as is the congregation, and the congregation becomes an extension of this and provides a larger community unit for the members of the household. Uh, let's pray and then we'll go to Q&A.